The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you this week by you, the hundreds of people who listen to the Door County Pulse podcast and the weekend primer twice a week, every week. If you're an individual or small business who would like to reach out to those hundreds of listeners each week, then why not think about sponsoring an episode of the Door County Pulse podcast or weekend primer? You can do so by emailing us at info at doorcountymarketing.com. From all of us in Door County and across the United States who check in every week to the Door County Pulse podcast, we look forward to hearing from you very soon. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor of the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? That's going good. What's up, Andrew? Not a whole lot. Gearing up for Halloween. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that later on, but we we do have some kind of rapid-fire news stories, new articles in the Pulse this week, and updates on some current events that are coming up. So maybe we just jump right in and work our way through some of these. Sure. Uh, first up, there's going to be a lot of election news coming up here in this week's issue as we approach the November 6th elections. There's an article or two in there. Andre Jacques and Caleb Frostman were interviewed. We, uh, Jackson Parr, who's uh, down at grad school in Madison, caught up with Caleb Frostman in his office down there, and I caught up with Andre Jacques just to talk about the kind of quirky election cycle that they've faced. This seat became available at the beginning of this year. It wasn't until several months into the year that a court ordered uh, Scott Walker to call for a special election for the first Senate district seat, which represents Door County and parts of Brown County and Kiwani. So we, in the, in the process of this election cycle, Andre Jacques faced a primary challenge in April for the Republican nomination and then turned around in June for the special election and squared off with Caleb Frostman. Caleb Frostman won that election, the first Democrat to win that seat in over 40 years, actually the first person not named Lassay to own that seat in 40 years because sure. it was Allen and then Frank Lassay. And then they turned around and for Jacques, he decided to run again against Frostman in the general election in November. So he faced another primary challenge that he won handily in August. And now Jacques will be um, going into his fourth election day since April, uh, November 6th, and Frostman his second. So Frostman's been in office for about five months when election day comes across, but he still will not have served in an actual legislative session. Um, obviously, representatives do a lot of work outside of the session, but so he, it's kind of interesting because he doesn't have, he's the incumbent, but doesn't have a, a voting record <laughs> to run on or to be run against. And then Jacques is a sitting assemblyman who's actually been in office a lot for eight years. So he's been in office for a while, but he's not the incumbent. It's just a really interesting race. So we caught up with each of them just to talk about the how you approach something like this. How is this November race different than maybe the special election? Has it just become laborious to continue to knock on doors and do this for so long? Right. But they both seem very energized. They seem like they, they've enjoyed the process of talking to a bunch of people. And yeah, it should be, it's a really important, it's considered a bit of a bellwether election for the state and even the nation. It got national attention um, when Frostman won the special election in June. And if there is a blue wave, Frostman would would be a big indicator of that uh, in November. And if not, and, and if things go back to normal, you know, they'll have Andre Jacques and, and this region will be represented by a Republican in the state Senate again for, you know, going back to kind of normal for the last 50 years. Right. Is there any sort of precedent uh, or similar situations to this where you've got a special election so close to the regular election? It's not unheard of, but normally, like in this case, Frank Lassay stepped down from the position at the end of the year last year. 
Normally, you would call for a special election right away. Scott Walker did not want to do that, so it kind of pushed things off. Otherwise, that first election might have, been, might have happened in, say, like February or March. Instead, it got pushed way back to June, so it kind of it cramped the timetable for everybody. And Jacques and Frostman were both likely to run in the general election, so we probably have the same two candidates we would have. But, yeah, it's just uh, it's, it's a weird one, and, and people are pro- maybe getting close to election fatigue, so I think a lot of people... Though they may be looking forward to November 6th, I think a lot of people will be happy to stop getting the flyers in the mail on November 7th. No, absolutely. Well, and I I think, too, there's probably a little bit of a weird situation where you've got people who are happy with Caleb's win having to double down and vote again, whereas people who are unhappy with it now are just energized to get out in the polls. So it'll be interesting to see if that has some sort of effect in whether or not he stays where he is or if Andre Jacques is elected. Yeah, from Frostman's standpoint, he's looking at Tammy Baldwin has a huge lead in this race for U.S. Senate. Um, and Tony Evers is running neck and neck with, uh, depending on the poll you look at, maybe a little ahead, maybe a little behind, incumbent Scott Walker in the governor's race. So for Frostman, that indicates, hey, that, if that trickles down the ticket, that's going to be really good for Frostman. For Jacques, he's hoping, he, he narrowly lost the election in, in June. So he's hoping that Republicans just weren't very energized in June for that special election and Democrats were very energized. So he's hoping that'll balance out more and that'll tip the scales in his favor. Uh, another bit of politics for this week. We did some roundups of the, the governor race and some stances that each uh, candidate took. Yeah, we, uh, we broke down a few of the issues that are coming up in the governor's race. Uh, obviously, at the governor's level, there's so much to cover. We could dedicate an entire issue to that, but I think our readers would get bored. But we did cover four of the some of the main topics, uh, one of those being road funding, which is on a lot of minds throughout the state, um, even in Door County, where a lot of communities, Liberty Grove now goes to a special vote with its voters just to maintain its roads and services. Sturgeon Bay is looking at enacting a special tax to try and keep up with its um, road needs. And, and they have some really, really bad roads in Sturgeon Bay right now. And other communities in Door County have done the same. Part of that is due to a a levy limit that's been in place under Walker and that, that, that push to freeze property taxes for homeowners. The converse is all those homeowners all like good roads too. So that's a big issue and it's an even bigger issue in other parts of the state. Uh, redistricting is one we've covered. Act 10, which was the act put in place by Scott Walker that uh, led to the massive protests in Madison back in 2011. It pretty much eliminated some of the bargaining power of teachers unions and public employee unions in general, except for police officers, very conveniently left them out. So there's debatable about what Tony Evers will do if he wins. And obviously Scott Walker is proud of that act, so he's going to keep that in place. And a little bit of prisons on prison reform and the incarceration rates in the county. So that's all covered by Jackson Parr and Jim Lundstrom in this week's issue. So if you want to dive into the governor's race, it's all there. Cool. So maybe a follow up to something that we talked about last week with the school referendums coming up. Craig Starat did an article about Sevastopol in this week's issue, right? Yeah. Um, Sevastopol, of course, with the $25 million facilities referendum on the ballot on November 6th. Craig Starrett is a frequent visitor to Door County who does some freelance writing for us from time to time. And Jim Lundstrom had asked him to go and go to one of the open houses at Sevastopol and get kind of an outsider's view of what he would see walking through that school. And he wrote a pretty interesting kind of column about just kind of walking through that and what you see from an outsider who's maybe used to going into some of the larger suburban public schools. And yeah, it's kind of an eye-opening look at the, the state of that school being much of it dating back to the 1920s, kind of narrow hallways, kind of getting lost in the building, so to speak. 
not to mention uh, some of the other facilities there that are kind of falling apart and need repair. So it's a, if you want to get another taste of, of what's on the ballot for Sevastopol and what it might mean for that school, Craig did a nice job of running down some of the, the numbers and, and what you see on the inside. Right. I, I've never actually been inside Sevastopol, but I know that when I went back to my elementary school growing up, like even I noticed how small everything was. The ceilings yeah. seemed smaller than I was used to. Mm-hmm. The lockers were so small. Um, and our elementary school is fairly modern. So I, I would imagine that problem is expounded upon when you've got a really old building like that. Yeah, all of the schools in Door County have been, like a lot of schools anywhere, um, added on and, and kind of reconfigured through the years. But Sevastopol is maybe the most hodgepodge of them, in part because it was, I mean, it was built up, whereas, say, like Gibraltar School is built horizontally. So most of Gibraltar is on one story, and then it just kind of dips down with the contours of the land. But you never, I went to Gibraltar, and you don't have to go up and down stairs at all, really, to go to classes. At Sevastopol, there's three stories, and it's just kind of like all these boxes kind of shoved together and stacked and to make it work at various points throughout history as as schools needed to do more, and then as enrollment would grow, and now you have this enrollment decline and, sh- and shifting around, and it just doesn't, it doesn't all fit together very well, all the different renovations over the years. Did they ever have to expand classrooms out into shipping containers? They did actually have a, um, like a trailer in back for a while. I, don't, I can't remember if it's still there now. I haven't been behind that school, but back when I played high school football, we had a combined program with Gibraltar and Sevastopol. So we would take the bus down there, or when I was 16, we'd be able to drive down there to, to practice right after school. And I was always surprised. I'm like, wow, there's actually like this trailer. What's this doing back here? And it yep. was like a temporary classroom as, as kind of class sizes bulged. Yep. So. My elementary school had several like trailers, basically big shipping containers that they would load extra students into. When I was in elementary school, I believed that they were used seldomly, like they might have been special needs classrooms or something with very mm-hmm. small class sizes. Uh, but then as I was in high school, they had to put more and more trailers up. I, I almost want to say it's because of a failed referendum that was going to expand the school. So in lieu of that, they then created a bunch of temporary classrooms. Yeah, yeah, you've seen that around. And so Sevastopol, so again, is, it's a big, it's going to be a big day for them on November 6th. There's a lot of signs in support of the referendum. We've gotten a lot of letters in support. I haven't seen a lot of letters against it, but usually in the school referendum, situations, the people against it just kind of sit quietly and then you, they just show up and do it silently in the ballot box because it's not popular to be the guy speaking out against funding the schools. Right. Uh, that's the that's probably the biggest thing locally that I'll be watching on November 6th when we get the results back. Last night I attended the open house at Gibraltar School and um, just kind of got to walk through going through some of the numbers there on their referendums again, both the operational referendum and their remodeling of their, their library. And it was Walking into the library, it does seem very, very dated. Uh, Wood-paneled walls looks like a lot of the apartments I've lived in in Northern Door County over the years, the the old, unremodeled cottage that has thin windows. But, yeah, that's what the, the IMC looks like in, in Gibraltar. So it's, that's, it's a big deal for Gibraltar on November 6th as well, the, the remodeling of that facility. So if you uh, want to read more, the, in this week's issue, Craig Starrett's got a really great rundown of, of what you'll see at Sevastopol. Jackson wrote about the room tax um, in Door County. Room taxes increased, and then you've had uh, an opportunity to talk uh, to a lot of people about the tourism season and how that's changed. Um, tell me a little bit about that article. Yeah, this time of year is uh, mixer season in Northern Door County, or actually throughout Door County, where all of the visitor associations and business associations kind of do their fall dinners and mixers, and some of them combine that with their annual meetings. 
So we've been attending a lot of those over the last, I, I was at three this week, one last week. Um, it's kind of interesting. You, you do meet a bunch of people and you also get a little feedback on how their seasons went. And on the whole, I'm just, I've heard a lot of people saying they've had a really good season. Um, and the room tax numbers show that and the sales tax numbers show that. Um, Jackson just did a quick recap of the August room tax numbers right now across the county. They show that it's up 4%. Uh, the town of Egg Harbor is actually up 12%, which is uh, something we'll be looking at when more complete numbers come in, um, whether that is due to Airbnb units coming online in, in the town of Egg Harbor. Because the township, there's a township and a village of Egg Harbor. And the only major lodging in the township is the Landmark Resort, and that's almost 300 units. So it'd be curious, is that all represented by the Landmark being a lot more busy, or are a lot of uh, Airbnb and private homes coming on the market and paying room tax? So there's, uh, but yeah, it all looks like it's been a good summer for businesses throughout Door County. And I think it shows through in both um, your lodging numbers, but also your retail sales tax numbers. What's the impact of this? What, what, is, what does the room tax actually mean for Door County? Uh, room tax is, uh, so room tax has been in place for about 10 years. Before that, the best barometer of tourism was a, a study that would be put out by the state each year that would use some formulas to determine what they thought tourism spending was in your county. And it was kind of a vague ballpark thing. And once I dug into the numbers I, 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 and how they um, figured it out, it wasn't really that reliable or, or that great of an indicator. And so when, once they put in room tax, once you do that, you get a lot more data. You get, you get a breakdown by municipality of the average room night rate in each town. You get the breakdown of room nights filled versus room nights available and, and your total room tax collections. Um, and a portion of that, 66% of that room tax collection goes to the Door County Visitor Bureau to promote marketing in the county. 4% goes to administrative costs and 30% goes back to the municipality that it was collected in. And then the, the, that municipality can decide how to spend that 30%. Most of them give a good chunk of that back to their own local visitor center. And then they use some of the rest of it, ideally for other type, kind of like visitor type infrastructure. They might do spend it on flowers and beautification. Maybe they put it into the roads budget. That's probably happening more now that there isn't the funds for roads. But that, so that's kind of how it's collected and, and dispersed. And what you can take from those numbers, you get a really good look now that we've had 10 years of data, you get a really good look of how we're doing compared to past years. That's, that's a very well-defined number versus kind of like an abstract, well, it seems busier or it seems slower or traffic seems down. Like those aren't, those aren't really measurable, but room tax is a, a very easily measured barometer of how the county's doing. So that's room tax. What have you been up to going to different mixers and talking about the tourism season? Well, you like to, you like to combine those room tax numbers by, by talking to people because even though room tax might be up, you might find out that lodging owners feel like they're not doing as well. And that might seem like it, that, that might seem like that sh it shouldn't work like that. But because with Airbnb on the market, each year, a little bit more of our lodging dollars are coming from Airbnb and private home rentals and VRBO versus lodging and it's a kind of a change in visitor habits so as so i like to go and talk to people at those meetings just to find out like all right here's the numbers but what do the lodging people say and i have heard from several different prominent lodging owners that their numbers are actually maybe a little bit off um this year which indicates to me that more people are going to that private home rental market which moving forward is something good for the visitor bureau to know and municipalities to know whether it's do we need to do something to protect those lodging people or do those lodging people need to do something different in their marketing to compete with those private homes? So it's a, it's a good number and some good anecdotal evidence to put into your marketing efforts. And then 
otherwise, like talking to retail vendors, like the room tax numbers don't necessarily translate all the time into food and, and retail. So it's nice to get a, an idea from them on, on how they're doing. And you also get a, a good gauge. All these, they give these presentations about what they've been doing throughout the year. And you can kind of look at what, how the different towns are, are trying to differentiate themselves within the Door County market and make their, their town stand out because it's the Door County Visitor Bureau job, Visitor Bureau's job to get everyone to the county. And then once they're here, it's amongst the communities to prove that they're the place that people should be spending their dollars. Sure. Hopefully, you know, in general, they all try to work together, but there's a competitiveness that comes out as well. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. We, we've done a lot of interviews with Visitor Bureau clients over the last year talking about how the Bureau impacts them and the county in general. And pretty much everybody had the same sentiment about when more people come into the county, there's more people here to then go out into the shops and the restaurants. Right. So bringing more people in is is a net gain no matter what. Yeah. Um, we, we had talked about like, you know, do you, how do you feel? Because they all pay membership dues, um, but some of them don't take advantage of the what the Bureau offers as much as others. But every single one of them was like, I am fine paying my dues because I know that it's bringing more people into the county in general. And that's going to help me indirectly and, and directly. A lot of the lodging places up here take more advantage of what the Visitor Bureau has to offer. And then a lot of the the restaurants or shops take less advantage. But they're all in agreement that bringing more people in will affect all of them equally. Yeah, I mean, take the Peninsula Pulse, for example. We have a product, we have a newspaper that we're trying to sell. We don't expect the Visitor Bureau to go and market our newspaper. That's not going to draw people here. The fact that there's what I think is a great newspaper here. We could be the best newspaper in the world. People aren't going to travel because this community has a newspaper, but we're still members of the Visitor Bureau because if they're not bringing people here, there's the businesses don't do well and they don't advertise. So you have to understand like how the whole, how they lift waters for the, for all the boats. And sometimes for retail, they might say, well, we should be doing more for this, but like people don't make their travel decisions based on the shopping. They make it based on the lodging and some of the other attractions. And then they will shop like crazy once they're here. Right. That's not to diminish like what the, the role of a shopping place has. But in general, that's, that's probably the way it goes. Another anecdote that I heard from Brian Kelsey at Peninsula Players that really stuck with me was that even though there are, you know, five to six big theaters up here, he said that he's not competing with them. He's competing with your time. So, like, yeah. like he's not trying to, to get you to come to Peninsula Players over any other theater. He's trying to get you to come to the theater. Yeah, um, because that's you're, interesting. You're here, and it's like, okay, so how how am I going to get you to spend three to four hours here at my theater when you could be out at a restaurant or out on the water or out yeah. doing some activity? I'm competing for your time in Door County. I'm not competing with everybody else. Yeah, and and that goes back to what you said about the individual towns. They're not necessarily competing with each other to try to one-up each other. They're just trying to be like, hey, this is why you should spend your time in Door County here in this town. Right. Um, so it's an interesting dichotomy. Any other takeaways about the tourism season? How are we doing this year? Do we have to close down? No, we're going to stay open at least for a couple more weeks, probably make it through the election cycle, and then we'll, we'll roll from there. Okay, good. So we got two more things that we want to talk about, one of them being uh, last weekend's Fall 50. Um, you were there, and we have some interesting stuff to talk about. But we're actually going to go grab Aaliyah Kid because she actually ran the Fall 50 this year. So and it'll froze. Be, yeah, and it'll be good to get her perspective on that. Uh, and then right after that little break with Aaliyah, we are going to jump into our feature, and we're going to talk about Halloween. Because this is, I guess it's our Halloween episode, because there won't <laughs> be another one before Wednesday. So we're going to take a little break, and we will come back with Aaliyah Kid to talk about the Fall 50. All right. All right, we are back. Uh, with us now is Aaliyah Kidd. How are you doing, Aaliyah? Doing good. 
So how were you doing over the weekend in the Fall 50? Were you still doing good? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was really excited to be uh, running the Fall 50. I've always heard about the event and how fun it is. Um, so I joined a team, and the team was from Minnesota, so I was kind of the odd one out, but decided to uh, take part. But now you're, you're tiptoeing around the, the actual conditions of the run. So why don't, why don't we just jump right in? How was the run on the weekend, Miles? Well, we, we ended up getting every kind of bad weather you could ask for for a run. We had snow, we had wind, we had sleet, we had rain. It was kind of a brutal afternoon. The worst weather in the history of the event, according to Sean Ryan, the director and founder. Now, you were telling me that the, the volunteers and the people working the event probably had the worst time. But, Aaliyah, it seems like the runners were fine, right? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Is the worst part, I, I think, was standing there waiting to run or, um, yeah, just cheering on your team, your poor team members while they're running. It was just hard standing outside when you're cold. Once you're running, within, you know, the first five minutes of your leg, you warm up pretty quickly. So it actually wasn't that bad as you were running? Because it looked pretty awful as I was driving it around. Was, it was pretty awful, but as long as you were moving, you stayed pretty warm. But the, the snow and sleet and rain in your face wasn't, wasn't that fun, though. Was there any sort of accumulation? Did it get slippery as you were running? Uh, for me, it wasn't really. I guess the, the road was probably wet enough and warm enough that it didn't get slippery, thank goodness. But I did have a team member say there were some muddy areas on her leg, which... Yeah, the people who had to run through the park, um, I was told there were some pretty good-sized mud puddles in the uh, Peninsula State Park where we brought the kids or brought the runners back up behind Gibraltar School. Um, the volunteers, like they, like you said, you get warm as you run. Mm-hmm. I was driving around in a car doing the fluid stations. We'd get out, we'd freeze for a few minutes, get back in the car, warm up. The volunteers had to stand out there. In some of these cases, like just like Murphy Park and Old Stone Quarry Park and Chateau Hutter, just wind whipping into them for five hours, pulling the tent stakes almost out of the ground. In some cases, we probably had like one mangled tent at every other aid station. So we had to kind of modify a lot of stuff as we went. So the volunteers did an awesome job of just sticking it out and dressing well for it. And Aaliyah, you wrote this week about a lot of lessons you learned from your experience this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of approached it as being a really fun event, and it was a really fun event, but um, it's also very challenging. So uh, next year, I'll definitely be doing some more hill training and um, bring, bringing extra pairs of socks and clothes just in case. <laughs> well, you were on a team with Minnesota runners, so they probably showed up in their shorts and were fine, right? They were pretty well prepared, actually. Uh, they didn't complain, so that's great. Well, now that you've done a Fall 50 in the worst conditions ever... Are you going to do it again next year? Oh, yes. We're definitely signing up next year. I've got more friends on board with me, so we're excited and hopefully better weather. A shocking thing, 73 solo runners started, 63 of them finished. 505 teams started, and 463 of those finished. I was shocked that that many people, like, when I was sitting at the starting line, I'm like, I wouldn't do it today. I, I would back out. Like, I don't care what my registration fee was. Like, this is just not that fun. But the post party... Still had all these runners in costume, dancing around, tent was full. Um, people cried, probably trickled out a little sooner than normal, but um, especially like if you were like Aaliyah, who only brought one change of clothes mm-hmm. and then ran two legs <laughs> and probably really wished she had another change of clothes at the finish line. Yep. But because I wanted a change of clothes and I was just working. But yeah, it was, it was still a lot of fun, but that was a challenge. Did the weather clear up as the day went on? Because I, I, I drove through maybe around 1 o'clock, and the weather was pretty normal. Um, did, the, did the after party get snowed out or anything, or were things pretty cleared up? 
It was uh, pretty calm by the end of the day. At least the sun had poked out a little bit. So my second leg that I ran, I didn't get wet. It was still very windy and cold. Um, And then for the post party, I I remember walking from our van to the tent and it seemed like the longest walk ever because you were walking straight into a a really strong headwind. But once you're in the tent, you're good. Yeah, we we were scared a little bit about the tent earlier in the day, whether it was going to hold out because we we lost a couple of smaller ones. But the big tents that Sean puts up for that thing, they're pretty solid and, and they held up pretty well. You did say something in your, what was the the mantra that you wrote about in the article from the starting line? Yeah, the Fall 50 mantra is get to Gill's Rock, face south, and don't stop until somebody gives you a beer. (laughs) Nice. Which which you said like sounds like a good marketing slogan, but actually that day it it was in your head as you ran. It really helps to know that there is good beer and lots of pizza (laughs) waiting for you. Who who was the overall winner? The the time on that guy's race was ridiculous. I, I don't have the name on the top of my head, but he finished at about a seven minute per mile pace in about five, I want to say it was about five and a half hours that he ran it in. And I saw him coming by at the end and I was just like, how are you? He looked fine. And the sec, the, those top runners didn't seem phased by the weather at all. They're running through sleet and snow when I passed him by the Old Stone Quarry Park with shorts on. Now, their legs just looked like a shade of red that I've never seen before. So I think they must have just been burning or hurting. But yeah, they seem to be in great condition. And the top female finisher just finished uh, like an hour behind them. So they like those top runners, I mean, they've probably run all over the country in all sorts of conditions. So maybe this wasn't much to them, but it looked brutal to me. Yeah, there's a great shot. It might be in the article, but I definitely saw it online of one of the runners going and there's like sleet coming down all over the place and he's just like barreling through in his shorts and stuff. With his shirt off. Yeah. Yeah, some of these guys are nuts. Um, that mantra, start at Gills Rock and run south till somebody hands you a beer. I think that I might <laughs> jump in next year for the Fall 50, but I'm going to run to Husby's and then that'll be the <laughs> end for me. Yeah. Good enough. I did pick up one runner at the 47 mile mark, about 47 and a half. Um, as I was, it was late in the night, it was like 6.15, dark. Um, technically the course is already closed. We don't give people finishing times after 6 because we don't want to encourage them to be on the roads after dark. But I pulled over by him and I asked him how he was doing. He just turned and looked at me and he just shook his head and he goes, I'm done. Are you sure? You're at, you're 47 and a half. It's like two and a half miles. He was just walking at this point. Like my knees are toast. I'm like, you want to ride? Yeah. And he just hopped in. His name was Juan. Uh, He's from Appleton, originally from Mexico. Uh, He said it was his first fall 50. And I I was just like trying to perk him up like, 47 and a half is still a pretty good accomplishment. (laughs) That's pretty much 50. Yeah. Like, it's pretty much there, especially in those conditions. It was probably more like 65 is what he ran. Mm -hmm. But he must have been struggling for a while to to get that far and then decide, like, it just wasn't worth the injury. So, Any other takeaways from the weekend? Would you consider your first Fall 50 to be a success, Aaliyah? Yeah. I mean, I think our group was prepared as mentally as we could be, and so we just decided to have a good time. Did you wear costumes? No. Next year. What are you going to wear next year? Lame. Uh, I already uh, have some ideas in the works. Maybe Spice Girls or (laughs) who knows. (laughs) Very cool. Maybe we'll have a Pulse team next year. Yeah, that would be great. Like I said, I will. I'll run the first. I'll run the first leg to Husby's. That'll be where I get my enthusiastic. Well, thanks, Leah. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, Miles, we have uh, less than a week till Halloween, uh, but this is our last Friday podcast before Halloween comes around. Um, So I just wanted to talk, Matt and I talked about some of the upcoming Halloween activities in the weekend primer this week, 
But I wanted to talk more just general Halloween indoor county, what it was like when you were growing up, what it's like now, how it's changed, that kind of stuff. Uh, but first off, did you know that Halloween is a shortened version of its original name? No, I did not. Yeah, so Halloween, uh, I believe it's a Hallmark nickname to, you know, capitalize on Halloween cards and candy and stuff. But it was actually called uh, by the pagans, All Hallows Ween. I don't so, believe this, Andrew. No, it, look it up. Google <laughs> All Hallows Ween. That's what I've been calling it since I was young. I must have heard it from somewhere, so it must be true. Um, all right, all the fact checkers out there get to work on this. Yeah, send me an email if only if you agree, though. Yeah. Don't at me on Twitter if, if you think I'm wrong. Um, so, Miles, how do you generally celebrate All Hallows Ween up here? Uh, unfortunately, this year I'm going to be gone, but Halloween in Door County has actually always it's been one of my favorite holidays. Um, we used to have a pretty rockin' party at Husby's back in the day when I was working there. And that was actually the first time, like the first year I had Husby's when I was like 20. That was the first time I realized that adults still dressed up and they dress up awesomely. Door County's pretty creative when it comes to that. Uh, as a kid, like any kid, you, you look forward to the candy. But I distinctly remember watching E.T. as a kid and seeing like their trick-or-treat day and not really believing it because... You know, they just get on their bikes or walk around, and all the movies are just walking door to door to get trigger to get candy. And Halloween for me, I lived in the country, so we drove door to door, and you just looked for houses that weren't totally dark, and drove up, and you just hoped they had candy. And it was hit or miss because, like, if you live on some of these random county trunk roads, you don't stock candy for trick or treaters. But we would just drive around, pop out, and my family of six kids would roll up to the door, and we ended up getting a fair amount of fruit as kids. Because they didn't have anything, but you you did know that like certain houses were going to stock up, right? I grew I grew up in a neighborhood that there was maybe fifteen houses as I was growing up, and I could trick or treat throughout my neighborhood. Um, I would get with some of the other neighbor kids, and we would go to other nearby neighborhoods too. Um, but my neighborhood was usually enough, and then maybe we would venture out towards the school and that kind of stuff. Uh, but then as I left um, to go to college. There was a ton of development that happened in my neighborhood. So there's probably 60 or 70 houses in my neighborhood now. So I would imagine that you could do that whole, because you can do my neighborhood, then go all the way around in this huge loop where there's another 50 houses. You could probably trick-or-treat through there and then be done. I mean, you could get it all done in like an hour and a half and have all of your candy ready to go. So I've been here a couple of years now. Me and my wife don't put candy out for Halloween because nobody comes to our you're, doors. Because you're, you're mean people. Yeah, because we're mean. Well, we did the first year. Do you not like kids? I, I, I like kids and I like trick-or-treaters and I wish that they would come to the house, but they don't. So we don't you put it out. You gotta advertise. You gotta put a classified in the Peninsula Pulse, let trick-or-treaters know. That wouldn't be creepy at all. I'm gonna put a sign up that says trick-or-treaters and then point <laughs> towards my house in my neighborhood. There's enough houses in my neighborhood that you could trick-or-treat, but there's not a lot of people there and there's definitely not enough children to come through it. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, a lot of trick-or-treating seems to happen more in the towns through the businesses in Door County. Is that right? Well, yeah, and that's really something that I don't remember as a kid, like all the, the designated trick-or-treating times. Maybe this is something with changes in society of saying, all right, we're going to try and do this all in this couple of hours span so that everything's safe and... Um, everyone's doing it in one spot, but I don't remember that when I was a kid. I think that's really sprouted up up here in the last 10 years or so. Um, but yeah, now the, now you have like Bailey's Harbor will have a designated time. Sister Bay will have a designated time. Egg Harbor will have a designated time, which would have been pretty convenient for me looking back on it. I think it's so funny that the different towns will do these big holiday events, but on different days. So like 4th of July, you can go see fireworks like five times. 
And yeah. you can do the same thing with Halloween. If you've got a kid or even if, you know, you want to pretend that you have a kid and go trick-or-treating <laughs> yourself, you could do it like five or six times before Halloween and you could really yeah, stock you up. Could, you could really nail it on candy nowadays. If if I really missed out now, now that you're talking about that. I mean, you could load up bag after bag. I think that that's because my wife and I are excited to go out the day after Halloween and get candy from the store because it'll be reduced prices. Mm, but smart shopper. I'm more excited now to have kids just so that I can get them to go out and get candy because <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to hit each town on every day. So we'll have the two-week-long trick-or-treating, and then we'll have a mountain of free candy. That That is a wise move. Um, I think it's maybe not going to be great for the diet, but... But we're going to share it among the family, though. Like, I'm not just going to, like, here you go, kid. This is all yours. It's going to be like, all right, now you get a portion, then I get a portion. (laughs) My kids are going to grow up very, very regimented in their sharing, I guess. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned dressing up and adults. There's a lot of adult Halloween parties up here, too. I went to one at the brewing company last year, did Mm -hmm. a costume contest there. I know there's a bunch of other ones. Um, what kind of Halloween parties do you like to usually go to? Um, I used to. We used to throw a great one at Husby's, um, and that was a tradition even before we took over. And that was back when it was like Husby's, Bayside, and maybe JJ's would do one. And now there's just a lot more of those throughout the county. There was one year where a buddy of mine and I decided to dress up as Sports Center, a very kind of vague theme for a costume. Mm-hmm. So we actually, so we realized, oh, we're going to walk around. We're going to wear suits. And but we're gonna make a sports center set, and we're gonna be sports center anchors behind a desk, which required a lot more building skills than we had. Right. And so it was it was it took a lot of work for like two weeks ahead of time, and this is at a time when like a couple hundred bucks was a lot of money to us. We're like, wow, we spent a lot of money building this costume. Um, but it lit up, and it looked pretty funny on the dance floor to see like a, a eight foot high by six foot wide set like TV set moving back and forth on the dance floor. Um, and you know, like the probably one of my favorite costumes that anybody ever wore at Husby's was these two women who went as children of the corn mm-hmm. and the old horror movie. And to do that, they they wrapped a bunch of corn, like dead corn stalks around their body. You couldn't see them at all. And then you just look out on the dance floor and you just see these corn stalks bopping up and down, bopping up and down. And then the morning after, we realized that maybe it wasn't such a great costume for us to let in there because they were just on the beer and stuff that gets left on a bar floor at the end of the night and all the sticky crap down there, you ended up with a bunch of the corn kernels and corn stalks like glued to the floor and you had to like scrape it off. You couldn't mop it. You had to like scrape it off of the tile floor. It was disgusting, but it made for a really good uh, viewing experience the night before. Side note, the the dollars stuck to the roof at Husby's. Does that happen after you or are you doing that? No, we were, that happened actually before me. That dates uh, way back uh, to whenever they opened up that ceiling, I think around 1990. Um, I'm I'm not sure how that started, but it used to be a lot of fun because I don't know. Have you ever done it? I haven't. I actually don't know how it works either. So, how you do it is you put like a a thumbtack and stick it through the, like the face of a dollar dollar bill, and then you put a quarter. A nickel would work too, but you put a quarter behind that, and you kind of wrap that quarter in the dollar. That gives it just enough weight that you can fling it up there. And usually, the quarter will stay up there for a while, and then randomly just fall down and maybe hit someone in the head or just ding on the floor. But it used to be fun, too, because when people who didn't know how it's done, you could always mess with them. And you just, uh, we had a bartender who would always get people on this. He would just be like, oh, yeah, just uh, you just take the dollar bill and you can just roll it up really tight. And you just lick the face and you just wing it up there. And he had a good way of like slipping his quarter and tack in there without them seeing it. And he'd do it and they'd be like, wow. So you just have somebody basically trying to fling a piece of paper onto the ceiling right. and watching it just flutter around like a little like leaf in the air. 
and do it five, six times and just mesmerized by how this bartender could do it. So you could play some games with people. If the quarter falls into your drink, do you get a free beer? <laughs> I think I think we probably would have done that had that happened. I don't think I ever saw it happen, though. I saw it hit people in the head. What other Halloween traditions do you usually have? Do you decorate a pumpkin? Do you watch scary movies? What's kind of your deal? You know, I haven't checked. Bayside used to have a, a pumpkin carving contest that they would do every year. That we, I used that to go to. That sounds really messy if you're carving really it there messy. at the bar. I, we would go down there once in a while. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, it was always about coming up with the best costume we could. Like Johnny Gonzalez, uh, the, the late Johnny Gonzalez always had a great costume. And maybe he might have been one of the ones who got people really competitive about coming up with like the best costume they could. So usually going into Halloween, I was always just trying to like outdo someone from the year before and try to think of something new and creative and funny. Um, but it would be like bartending that that night. There would be times that like it was hilarious. So one time a customer came in in their costume just sat at the bar and didn't say a word and just like we would serve them beers and they would like shake their head. Yes, that's good. And we just the whole night had no idea who it was. And then at the end of the night, they took it off and we found, oh, that that's who it is. Kit. Great. <laughs> like there, there's a lot of it's kind of fun to try and figure out who is that when they walk in the doors. Uh, you're not going to be here next week for Halloween, right? You're going to be not. So the Pulse is doing a chili cook off. It's going to be fun. Um, we're going to be in costume. I don't think anybody at the Pulse office is going to dress up except for me. It's going to make my costume way funnier. You got to get Matt and Dave to do it. I, Matt, I've never seen Dave in a costume. I'll I'll work on Dave. Matt said that Matt was trying to find something. So my costume, because you won't be here, I'm going as Spider-Man in his 40s. So I got the Spider-Man mask and I got a Spider-Man muscle shirt, which is so tight. So tight. Uh, but I'm going to wear sweatpants and sneakers with it. And I'm going to roll the mask up so you can see my beard. <laughs> and I'm going to be a Spider-Man in his 40s. And I'm really excited to wear that to the office work on my computer, and eat chili all day. Yeah. <laughs> so, perfect Halloween coming up. Chili is a great food for when you're in a random piece of clothing and, and a costume. Right. Hopefully it's tight and it's going to be really uncomfortable. No, yeah, exactly. The shirt is like, it, it's a compression shirt for working out, so it's like, I'm vacuum sealed inside the shirt. It's really good. <laughs> um, what about... Are you going out? Are you hitting any of the costume parties? I think I might. It depends. Um, Did your wife get into it? Mm-hmm. She does. Yeah. Uh, last year, we went as Burt Macklin and Janet Snakehole from Parks and Recreation. Like, you've got to be good at this. You're a theater guy. Oh, yeah. No, I always dress up for stuff. Um, I In college, I did Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors, and I had nice. a, a puppet for the plant. A couple of the other good ones I saw, like, I, I'm one who's a big fan of people who take on massive projects for their uh, Halloween costume. So Mike Dobner once made an igloo and came dressed as an igloo, and it was just massive. Like, you couldn't move around the bar. Same thing with our, our sports center costume. We couldn't actually, like, go up to the bar and order something. We had to have people go and get it for us because um, you, you couldn't get through the doorway over there. Another guy went as an ice shanty. Two guys went and just like basically walked in in this big wooden shanty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I, I just love it when people just go way over the top. I like seeing the different Halloween costume trends that come through. So like a couple years ago, pretty much every woman was Marco Robbie's Harley Quinn from Suicide Squad. That was a huge one. Uh, tons of people were doing Bob Ross over the last couple years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my roommate in college and my dad actually dressed up as Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones's dad for Halloween. He didn't do it with me. He did it with my with my roommate. <laughs> and I think it's because my dad does look quite a bit like Sean Connery in that movie. So he just wore glasses and a hat and it was like, there it was. It was done. <laughs> um, Next year, we got to do a call out and get people to send us all their best Halloween costume photos from previous years. Yeah, we should do, do like a, a two page spread in the pulse. Yeah. Uh, what about horror movies? Do you do you watch horror movies the I week do. before? 
Oh, well, I, I do watch some the week before. Um, I'm a fan of like the old school ones, like The Shining. Mm. It still creeps me out, especially if you watch it alone. I need to, I, I'm, I didn't do it. Usually I like to like jump right in on October 1st and start decorating and getting all spooky. But I haven't done it this year. But I still have a week. Like, you know what? I can do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I can even go into the weekend because Halloween on a Wednesday is not really Halloween. Halloween yeah. is that whole weekend. Um, but I should probably dig into some classic horror movies. What's your favorite horror movie? I mean, I, I'd say The Shining just because it's so great and the writing's so great and then it's a classic performance. Um, what about you? I I grew up with horror movies like um, Jeepers Creepers. It was really spooky when I was growing up. Now it's a lot more campy than I remember it. Um, House is that way. Have you ever seen House? It's an old one, like early 80s, that I remember seeing as a kid and it really freaked me out, like gave me nightmares. And if I watch it now and it's just like, kind of goofy and funny the movie signs is like that for me too oh, yeah. like that wasn't a particularly scary movie but that like stuck with me for a long time and really freaked me out like all of the footage of the aliens that they captured <laughs> like like walking like bigfoot through like that oh, stuff yeah. freaked me out quite a bit um, the ring was a that's probably like 15 20 years old now mm -hmm. um that one was the first one that kind of used that kind of weird motion um filming mm -hmm. that really freaked me out when i saw that yeah i my sister is super into horror like the whole genre, like she she wears classic horror poster T-shirts and stuff year round. Like she's really <laughs> big into horror. Um, but I I need to up my like classic horror movie game because like she grew up with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween is her favorite horror movie. The new Halloween just came out, so I might go check that one out. Yeah, it seems kind of cool. Um, but I also really like the first Saw movie. Yeah, it's another one that's it's kind of kind horror, of thriller. Kind of thriller. Yeah, um, I really like that too. Yeah, I Carrie like that Elway's one. Princess Bride can make it a comeback. Mm -hmm. No, I like that movie, and I really like the twist at the end. Like it, yeah. it leaves you on such a good twist, and then you're just like, wow. Someone just told me last night that I think it's The House on Haunted Hill is mm -hmm. a, a Netflix show or something that's mm -hmm. really really scary. Yeah, so. I've heard good things about that. Um, American Horror Story, I've heard really good things yeah. about. Um, my wife likes to watch Hocus Pocus every year. On Halloween? Oh, man, yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, so she's a big fan of that. Yeah, I've only bad. seen it twice, but it, like, yeah, it, I don't understand. Yeah. It's it got a really big cult following, and I, I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't need to be part of that cult. I also grew up with, um, Disney Channel did a bunch of original Halloween movies. You lucky. Yeah, so I grew up with, like, really kid-friendly. So oh, yeah? <laughs> no, I grew up with really kid-friendly horror movies. But then, like, my sister would show me stuff, and my dad would show me stuff. So I would watch, like, Hitchcock horror movies, and... I haven't seen it, the original or the the new one, but I've heard that that one's like really frightening. My mom's really into horror movies, but she likes screams. So, and then my <laughs> wife doesn't like horror movies at all because she gets really freaked out. So I haven't watched a lot of horror movies over the last like six to ten years. You got to watch them after she goes to bed. I'm gonna watch them with her this year because it's Curl up super funny when she does that. <laughs> um, what else? Any other? Do you do you decorate pumpkins? I used to decorate pumpkins quite a bit when I was young. Yeah, I used to. Um, the house I have now is kind of set off the road so nobody can see it, so it doesn't have the same motivation. But back when I had a house on the highway, I used to take like try and freak it out a lot. Like take um, like old. It's, it's great. You can do a lot with just like old sticks and just like make a tunnel in your front yard, and it actually looks really freaky. Throw some of that like um, spider webby stuff on it. Kids go crazy for that. Um, but yeah, I wish. Maybe I need to make some sort of thing from the highway because I live on like double Z, which is basically a highway. It's like 65 miles an hour. Right. I need to make something that like draws people in. Uh, what about you? you? Yes, I... I mean, we used to deck out Husbies like crazy. I used to love decking it out. Well, here's my thing. So growing up, my mom would bring home pumpkins and we'd make jack-o'-lanterns and I would usually just make faces. I never got really super elaborate. Um, 
In fact, one of my favorite jack-o'-lanterns I've ever seen, and you can find it if you Google tiny face jack-o'-lantern, it's a jack-o'-lantern with just, like, the tiniest little smile face on it. And it's really funny and looks even better when it's lit up because it's just this tiny little glowing face. But it's a full-size pumpkin. But then here's my other question about jack-o'-lanterns. When do you put them away for the season? When do you get rid of them? Because growing up, I just let them disintegrate into nothing. Yeah, you got to let them rot. They make great compost when it's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would usually, they'd be on our front step, and then as soon as they started getting gross, we'd kick them over into the the dirt, and then it would just, they'd flatten into nothing. It looks like you're Googling tiny I'm looking up tiny jack-o'-lantern. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I I recommend everybody look up tiny face (laughs) (laughs) jack-o'-lantern. In fact, I might make that one this year just because it's so good. That is great. And then what about haunted houses? So I know that there's a lot of haunted houses up here in Door County. There's the haunted hayride and the spooky ghost story stuff. Door County has kind of a haunted ambiance. Yeah, they do a big one down in Southern Door. And in fact, you can read all about it in the fall issue of Door County Living Magazine. Mm-hmm. They they really deck it out awesome down there. They have uh, the, the makeup is cool. It looked really, really freaky. Um, when I was a kid, Halloween was also a time when the pit, the kids who were like stronger than I was, I was too scared for this, but Thumb Fun had their haunted house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thumb Fun was the amusement park that is now North Haven Condominiums, but there used to be a great amusement park there. And they had a haunted house that, that actually functioned throughout the whole summer, but it was this time of year, everyone was flocking to it. And it was so scary. I went in there for the first time when I was eight. I made it like 10 steps in before like one of their characters jumped into the hallway and I sprinted out the door, down the hill and like cried for my mother. But I think I was like 13 or 14 when I actually re-entered it, mm-hmm. and it was it still it was still pretty pretty damn scary. But uh, I had crossed the threshold of growing into a maybe prepubescent man at that point. I I went to a couple of haunted houses when I was really young and remember being very scared of them. But then I I think I hit like 13 or 14, and I went to one that it just like the facade fell down for me. Like I was like, oh, I'm in theater now. I these are just actors. You knew all the tricks. Yeah, they they can't touch me. They can't like hurt me. So they're just going to try to scare me. And if I'm expecting them to scare me and I know that they're just, you know, they're just people, they're actors, it doesn't do it for me anymore. I don't know, maybe I need to go to one of those like extreme ones where they like choke you and stuff. Maybe like I need to be <laughs> in real danger to get the fear thing. I worked at haunted houses in college and did some like more spooky theatrical experiences, which I always enjoyed. Um, Really cool type of theater is where you bring people into like a big warehouse or something and have them walk through. And then you put on the story in different parts of the warehouse. So you could go through it five times to get the whole story or you could Hmm. go through once and you just get what you can actually see. So the story is happening whether you're there or not. And you just have to kind of wander around to find it. Um, So that kind of stuff is really cool. But that totally killed the haunted house thing for me. I just, I can't take them seriously anymore. (laughs) Uh, Any other Halloween takeaways as we approach Wednesday? Well, then I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Miles. And I look forward to chatting with you. Boy, not next week, but in two weeks. Yeah, what are you going to do without me? I don't know. We'll we'll do something special for, for next week's Friday podcast. So look forward to that. Thanks, Andrew. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. 